The Pendant Shakespeare presents The Rape of Lucrece, Part 1. Dedication to the Right Honourable Henry Reardsley, Earl of Southampton, Baron of Titchfield. The love I dedicate to your lordship is without end, whereof this pamphlet without beginning is but a superfluous moiety. The warrant I have of your honourable disposition, not the worth of my untutored lines, make it assured of acceptance. What I have done is yours. What I have to do is yours, being in part all I have, devoted yours. Were my worth greater, my duty would show greater. Meantime, as it is, it is bound to your lordship, to whom I wish long life still lengthened with all happiness. Your lordships in all duty, William Shakespeare. The argument. Lucius Tarquinius, for his excessive pride surnamed Superbus, after he had caused his own father-in-law Servius Tilius to be cruelly murdered, and contrary to the Roman laws and customs not requiring or staying for the people's suffrages, had possessed himself of the kingdom, went accompanied with his sons and other noblemen of Rome to besiege Ardea during which siege the principal men of the army meeting one evening at the tent of Sextus Tarquinius, the king's son, in their discourses after supper every one commended the virtues of his own wife, among whom Collatinus extolled the incomparable chastity of his wife Lucretia. In that pleasant humor they all posted to Rome, and intending by their secret and sudden arrival to make trial of that which every one had before avouched, only Collatinus finds his wife, though it were late in the night, spinning amongst her maids. The other ladies were all found dancing and reveling, or in several disports. Whereupon the noblemen yielded Collatinus the victory, and his wife the fame. At that time, Sextus Tarquinius, being inflamed with Lucretia beauty, yet smothering his passions for the present, departed with the rest back to the camp, from whence he shortly after privily withdrew himself, and was, according to his estate, royally entertained and lodged by Lucretia at Collatium. That same night, he treacherously stealeth into her chamber, violently ravished her, and early in the morning speedeth away. Lucretia, in this lamentable plight, hastily dispatcheth messengers, one to Rome for her father, another to the camp for Collatine. They came, the one accompanied with Junius Brutus, the other with Publius Valerius. 
and finding Lucretia attired in mourning habit, demanded the cause of her sorrow. She, first taking an oath of them for her revenge, revealed the actor and whole manner of his dealing, and withal suddenly stabbed herself. Which done, with one consent they all vowed to root out the whole hated family of the Tarkins, and, bearing the dead body to Rome, Brutus acquainted the people with the doer and manner of the vile deed with a bitter invective against the tyranny of the king. Wherewith, the people were so moved that with one consent and a general acclamation, the Tarkins were all exiled. And the state government changed from kings to consuls. From the besieged are dear all in post, borne by the trustless wings of false desire, last breath Tarquin leaves the Roman host, and Colitaeum bears the lightless fire, which in pale embers hid lurks to aspire and girdle with embracing flames the waste of Colitaeum's fair love, Lucrece the Chaste. Happily that name of Chaste happily said this baitless edge on his keen appetite, when Colatine unwisely did not let to praise the clear unmatched red and white, which triumphed in that sky of his delight, where mortal stars as bright as heaven's beauties, with pure aspects did him peculiar duties. For he, the night before, in Tarquin's tent, unlocked the treasure of his happy state. What priceless wealth the heavens had him lent in the possession of his beauteous mate, Reckoning his fortune at such high proud rate, and kings might be espoused to more fame, but king nor peer to such a peerless dame. Oh, happiness enjoyed but of a few, and if possessed as soon decayed and done, as is the morning silver melting dew against the golden splendor of the sun. An expired date cancelled ere well begun, honor of beauty in the owner's arms, are weakly fortressed from a world of harms. Beauty itself doth of itself persuade the eyes of men without an orator. What needeth then apology be made to set forth that which is so singular? Or why is Colatine the publisher of that rich jewel he should keep unknown from thievish ears because it is his own? Perchance his boast of Lucrece's sovereignty suggested this proud issue of a king, for by our ears our hearts oft tainted be, perchance that envy of so rich a thing, braving compared disdainfully disting his high-pitched thoughts, that meaner men should want that golden hap which their superiors want. But some untimely thought did instigate his all too timeless speed, if none of those, his honor, his affairs, his friends, his state, neglected all with swift intent he goes, to quench the coal which in his liver glows. O oh, rash false heat, wrapped in repentant cold, thy hasty spring still blasts and ne'er grows old. When at Colatine this false lord arrived, well was he welcomed by the Roman dame, within whose face beauty and virtue strived, 
which of them both would underprop her fame? When virtue bragged, beauty would blush for shame. When beauty boasted blushes in despite, virtue would stain that o'er with silver white. But beauty in that white entitled, from Venus's doves doth challenge that fair field. Then virtue claims from beauty, beauty's red, which virtue gave the golden age to gild their silver cheeks and called it then their shield. Teaching them thus to use it in the fight, when shame assailed, the red should fence the white. This heraldry in Lucretia's face was seen, argued by beauty's red and virtue's white. Of either color was the other queen, proving from world's minority their right. Yet their ambition makes them still to fight, the sovereignty of either being so great that oft they interchange each other's seat. This silent war of lilies and roses, which Tarquin viewed in her fair face's field, in their pure ranks his traitor's eye encloses, where, lest between them both it should be killed, the coward captive vanquished doth yield to those two armies that would let him go, rather than triumph in so false a foe. Now thinks he that her husband's shallow tongue, that niggard prodigal that praised her so, in that high task hath done her beauty wrong, which far exceeds his barren skill to show. Therefore that praise which Collatine doth owe, enchanted Tarquin answers with surmise, in silent wonder of still gazing eyes. This earthly saint adored by this devil, little suspected the false worshipper. For unstained thoughts do seldom dream on evil, birds never lying, no secret bushes fear. So guiltless she securely gives good cheer, and reverent welcome to her princely guest, whose inward will no outward harm expressed. For let he coloured with his high estate, hiding base sin in pleats of majesty, that nothing in him seemed inordate, save sometime too much wonder of his eye which having all could not satisfy. But poorly rich, so wanteth in his store, that cloyed with much he pineth still for more. But she, that never coped with stranger eyes, could pick no meaning from their parling books, nor read the subtle shining secrecies writ in the glossy margins of such books. She touched no unknown baits, nor feared no hooks, nor could she moralize his wanton sight, more than his eyes were open to the light. He stories to her ears her husband's fame, won in the fields of fruitful Italy, and decks with praises Collatine's high name, made glorious by his manly chivalry, with bruised arms and wreaths of victory. Her joy with heed of hand she doth express, and wordless so greets heaven for his success. Far from the purpose of his coming hither, he makes excuses for his being there. No cloudy show of stormy blustering weather doth yet in his fair welkin once appear, till sable night, mother of dread and fear, upon the world dim darkness doth display, and in her vaulty prison stows the day. For then is Tarquin brought unto his bed, intending weariness with heavy sprite, for after supper long he questioned, with modest Lucrece and wore out the night. Now leaden slumber with life's strength doth fight, 
and every one to rest himself betakes, saves thieves and cares and troubled minds that wakes. As one of which doth Tarquin lie revolving, the sundry dangers of his wills obtaining, yet ever to obtain his will resolving, the weak-built hopes persuade him to abstaining. Despair to gain doth traffic oft for gaining, and when great treasure is the meed proposed, though death be adjunct, there's no death supposed. Those that much covered are with gain so fond, that what they have not that which they possess, they scatter and unloose it from their bond, and so, by hoping more, they have but less. Or gaining more, the profit of excess is but to surfeit, and such grief sustain, that they prove bankrupt in this poor rich gain. The aim of all is but to nurse the life with honor, wealth, and ease in waning age. And in this aim there is such thwarting strife that one for all or all for one we gauge. As life for honor in fell battles rage, honor for wealth and of that wealth does cost the death of all and altogether lost. So that in venturing ill we leave to be the things that we are for that which we expect. And this ambitious foul infirmity in having much torments us with defect of that we have. So then we do neglect the thing we have and all for want of wit make something nothing by augmenting it. Such has a now must doting Tarquin make, pawning his honor to obtain his lust and for himself he must forsake. Then where is truth if there be no self-trust? When shall he think to find a stranger just when he himself confounds betrays to slanderous tongues and wretched hateful days? Now stole upon the time dead of night when heavy sleep had closed up mortal eyes. No comfortable star did lend his light no noise but owls and wolves' death-boding cries. Now serves the season that they may surprise the silly lambs. Pure thoughts are dead and still, while lust and murder wakes to stain and kill. And now this lustful lord leaped from his bed, throwing his mantle rudely o'er his arm, hence madly tossed between desire and dread. The one sweetly flatters, the other feareth harm. But honest fear, bewitched with lust's foul charm, doth too oft betake him to retire, beaten away by brain-sick rude desire. His falchion on a flint he softly smiteth, that from the cold stone sparks of fire do fly, whereat a waxen torch forthwith he lighteth, which must be low-star to his lustful eye. And to the flame thus speaks advisedly, As from this cold flint I enforce this fire, So Lucrece I must force to my desire. Here, pale with fear, he doth premeditate The dangers of his loathsome enterprise, And in his inward mind he doth debate What following sorrow may on this arise. Then, looking scornfully, he doth despise his naked armor of still slaughtered lust, and justly thus controls his thoughts unjust. Fair torch, 
Burn out thy light and lend it not to darken her whose light excelleth thine. And thy unhallowed source before you blot with your uncleanness that which is divine. Offer pure incense to so pure a shrine, let fair humanity abhor the deed that spots and stains love's modest snow-white weed. Oh, shame to knighthood and to charms! Oh, foul dishonor to my household's grave! Oh, impious act, including all foul harms! A martial man to be soft fancy's slave? True valor still a true respect should have. Then my digression is so vile, so base, that it will live engraven in my face. Yea, though I die, the scandal will survive and be an eyesore in my golden coat. Some loathsome dash the herald will contrive to cipher me how fondly I did dote, that my posterity, shamed with the note, shall curse my bones and hold it for no sin to wish that I, their father, had not been. What win I if I gain the thing I seek? A dream, a breath, a froth of fleeting joy. Who buys a minute's mirth to wail a week, or sells eternity to get a toy? For once we grape, who will the vine destroy? Or what fun bigger but to touch the crown? Word with scepter straight be stricken down. If Colotinus dream of my intent, will he not waken in a desperate rage, post hither this vile purpose to prevent, this siege that hath engirt his marriage, this blur to youth, this sorrow to the sage, this dying virtue, this surviving shame, whose crime will bear an ever-curing blame? Oh, what excuse can my invention make? When thou shalt charge me with so black a deed, will not my tongue be mute, my frail joints shake, mine eyes forego their light, my false heart bleed, the guilt be great, the fear doth still exceed, and extreme fear can neither fight nor fly, but coward-like with trembling terror die. Had Colotinus killed my son or sire, or lain in ambush to betray my life? Or were he not my dear friend, this desire might have excuse to work upon his wife, as in revenge or quittal of such strife. But as he is my kinsman, my dear friend, this shame and fault finds no excuse nor end. Shameful it is I, if the fact be known, hateful it is, there is no hate in loving. I'll beg her love, but she is not her own. The worst is but denial and reproving. My will is strong past reasons weak removing. Who fears a sentence or an old man's sore shall be by a painted cloth kept in awe. Thus graceless holds he disputation between frozen conscience and hot burning will, and with good thoughts makes dispensation urging the worser sense for vantage still, which in moment doth confound and kill all pure effects, and doth so far proceed, that what is vile shows like a virtuous deed. Quoth he, she took me kindly by the hand, and gazed for tidings in my eager eyes. 
Fearing some hard news from the warlike band where her beloved Colatinus lies, oh, how her fear did make her color rise. First red as roses at our lawn we lay, then white as lawn looks took away. And how her hand in my hand being locked, forced it to tremble with her loyal fear, which struck her sad, then it faster rocked, until her husband's welfare she did hear, whereat she smiled with so sweet a cheer, but had Narcissus seen her as she stood, self-love had never drowned him in the flood. Why hunt I then for color or excuses? All orators are dumb when beauty pleases. Poor wretches have remorse and poor abuses. Love thrives not in the heart that shadows dreadeth. Affection is my captain and he leadeth, and when his gaudy banner is displayed, the coward fights and will not be dismayed. Then childish fear of aunt, debating die. Respect and reason wait on wrinkled age. My heart shall never countermand mine eye. Sad pause and deep regard beseems the sage. My part is youth and beats these from the stage. Desire my pilot is beauty my prize. Then who fears sinking where such treasure lies? As corn o'ergrown by weeds, so heedful fear is almost choked by unresisted lust. Away he steals with open listening ear, full of foul hope and fond mistrust. Both which are servitors to the unjust, so cross him with their opposite persuasion, that now he vows a league and now invasion. Within his thought her heavenly image sits, and in the selfsame seats is Colatine, that I which looks on her confounds his wits, that I which him behold more divine, unto a view so false will not incline. But with a pure appeal seeks to the heart, which once corrupted takes the worse apart. And therein hardens up his servile powers, who, flattered by their leader's jocund show, stuff up his lust as minutes fill up ours, and as their captain so their pride doth grow, paying more slavish tribute than a owe. By reprobate desire thus madly led, the Roman lord marcheth to Lucretia's bed. The locks between her chamber and his will, each one by him enforced, retires his ward. But as they open, they all rate his ill, which drives the creeping thief to some regard. The threshold grates the door to have him heard. Night-wandering weasels shriek to see him there. They fright him, yet still he pursues his fear. As each unwilling portal yields him way, through little vents and crannies of the place, the wind wars with his torch to make him stay, and blows the smoke of it into his face, extinguishing his conduct in this case. But his hot heart, which one desire doth scorch, puffs forth another wind that fires the torch. And being lighted by the light he spies, Lucretia's glove wherein her needle sticks. He takes it from the rushes where it lies, 
and griping it, the needle his finger pricks. And who should save this glove to wanton tricks, if not insured, return again in haste? Thou seest our mistress's ornaments are chaste. But all these poor forbiddings could not stay him. He, in the worst sense, constant their denial. The doors, the wind, the glove that did delay him, he takes for accidental things of trial. Or as those bars which stop the hourly dial, who with a lingering stay his course doth let, till every minute pays the hour his debt. So, so, quoth he, these lets attend the time, like little frosts that sometime thread the spring, to add a more rejoicing to the prime, and give the steeped birds more cause to sing. Pain pays the income of each precious thing. Huge rocks, high winds, strong pirates, shoals and sands. The merchant fears, ere rich at home he lands. Now is he come unto the chamber door, that shuts him from the heaven of his thought which with a yielding latch and with no more hath barred him from the blessed thing he sought. So from himself impiety hath wrought that for his prey to pray he doth begin as if the heavens should countenance his sin. But in the midst of his unfruitful prayer, having solicited the eternal power that his foul thoughts might compass his fair fare, and they would stand auspicious to the hour. Even there he starts, quoth he, I must deflower the powers to whom I pray abhor this fact. How can they then assist me in the act? Then love and fortune be my gods, my guide. My will is backed with resolution. Thoughts are but dreams till their effects be tried. The blackest sin is cleared with absolution. Against love's fire, fierce frost hath dissolution. The eye of heaven is out, and misty night covers the shame that follows sweet delight. This said, his guilty hand plucked up the latch, and with his knee the door he opens wide. The dove sleeps fast that this night owl will catch. Thus treason works ere traitors be espied. Who sees the lurking serpent steps aside? But she, sound sleeping, fearing no such thing, lies at the mercy of his mortal sting. Into the chamber wickedly he stalks and gazeth on her yet unstained bed. The curtains being close, about he walks, rolling his greedy eyeballs in his head. By their high treason is his heart misled which gives the watchword to his hand full soon to draw the cloud that hides the silvery moon. Look as the fair and fiery pointed sun rushing from forth a cloud bereaves our sight. Even so the curtain drawer his eyes begun to wink being blinded with a greater light. Whether it is that she reflects so bright that dazzleth them, or else some shame supposed, but blind they are, and keep themselves enclosed. Oh, had they in that darksome prison died, then had they seen the period of their ill. Then Colatine again by Lucretia's side, in his clear bed might have reposed still, but they must hope 
this blessed leagued kill, and holy thought of Lucrece to their sight must sell her joy, her life, her world's delight. Featuring the wise talents of David Alt as William Shakespeare, Philip Weber as The Arguments, David Alexander MacDonald as The Reader. Original music and direction by David Alexander MacDonald. Appendant audio production. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.